0: standing out of respect for the Word of God, and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, and we'll read through the end of the chapter as we continue our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. People of God, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of our God. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. And the base things of the world are despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's ask God's help. Father, we have just sung it and we repeat it to you again in prayer. Teach us, O Lord, your statutes way so that we will keep it to the end. That you would make us wise to keep your law and cause our hearts to attend completely to your word eliminate from our minds and hearts all distractions and help us, Father, now by the grace of your Holy Spirit to feed upon your word and to be nourished spiritually and quickened and strengthened that we may not only know you, but learn how to love you and serve you and live for your glory in everything. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I came across a quote this past week by New Testament scholar D.A. Carson that helps us sort of get at the thinking here that the Apostle Paul unravels and demolishes. And Carson says this, he says, Why is it that we constantly parade Christian athletes, media personalities, and pop singers? Why should we think that their opinions or their experiences of grace are of any more significance than any other of those than other believers? He goes on to say, when we tell outsiders about people in our church, do we instantly think of the despised and the lowly who have become Christians? Or do we love to impress people with the importance of men and women who have become Christians? He says, modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infected With the virus of triumphalism, and the resulting illness, destroys humility, minimizes grace, and offers far too much homage to the money and the influence and wisdom of our day. It's that phrase, though, that really captured my attention, which I believe crystallizes the thought of the Apostle Paul here in this passage, and that is the church being infected with the virus of triumphalism. The virus of triumphalism is evident here as the Apostle Paul unfolds the problems in Corinth. And he says in verse 11 that there are quarrels among them and that people are lining up behind favorite apostolic superheroes, apollos of Cephas, of the Apostle Paul, of Christ. And Paul first begins to attack that ideology and that factionalism and those divisions by contrasting two ways of looking at the world. There's the one way of the wisdom of the word. That is the wisdom of speech characterized by the best of human philosophy and thinking. That is the ideas of the great rhetoricians of ancient Corinth. That is the ideas of of the philosophers, of the wise, of the greatest thinkers by human standards. He says there's that way of thinking, and that thinking is characterized by a lust for power and wisdom. And he says, on the other hand, there is the kind of thinking that is characterized by the cross. The scandal of the cross. The foolishness of the cross. The fact that God would send forth His Son to take upon Himself our flesh and to die in our place. He says to the Jews, that is a stumbling block. It is a stumbling block because they wanted power. They wanted a Messiah who would liberate them from oppression. They wanted a Messiah who was glamorous, who was a king, who was a general, who had a sword on his thigh. And then he says to the Greeks, which would be the class of people who think that their ability by human attainment is, is superior to everybody else. He says to the Greeks, the message of the cross is foolish, it's empty, it's moronic. That's his first attack on these factions. He says, these factions represent you Christians trying to go back to the best of human thinking and wisdom. It's you Christians who have now a thought life that is adorned, or rather is uh, characterized and influenced by the way and the thinking of the world. He says we need to adorn The model of the cross, which is weak and despised and foolish in the eyes of men, but to the power, but to God. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's attack number one that Paul makes upon the factionalism and the divisions. He says, when you want to line up behind Paul and Apollos and Cephas, you're just borrowing the ways of the world. Now he attacks it from a different angle. It's a very penetrating angle. Uh, When he comes to verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise, according to flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. You see, now the Apostle Paul's attack changes from them following the ways of the world to now he says the attack is an immoderate desire to be something. He says, you're dividing up into factions and you lining up behind... Paul or Apollos or Cephas is you grasping for power. It's you grasping for influence. It's you grasping for an identity. It's you identifying yourself with particularly powerful people to make yourself feel better about you. And he exposes that way of thinking. You know, he has to do that in a sense because it's so appealing to us. It's truly very appealing to us. Most of us have a yearning deep down inside to be identified with somebody or something or some group that we perceive as powerful or elite or influential or significant. And the reason why we have that deep down inside yearning is because most of us are really very ordinary people. Most of us have ordinary jobs. Most of us have ordinary educations. Most of us live in ordinary homes. Most of us have ordinary influence. Most of us are not called by the leading politicians or media elites of our age and quoted and asked about our opinions. Most of us simply live ordinary lives. And so when the opportunity comes by for us to... Uh, identify with some power group or individual or movement that gives us access to power and what we would consider glamour and influence, it's very tempting for us to try to identify with that, even if it means that we have to step on our neighbor to get there. And that's what he's saying. Uh, You Corinthians uh, have decided that though you were nothing before you came to Christ, now in Christ you have become something and now you are using your position in Christ and your position in church to uh, be a stepping stone to acquire more influence and more power and access to things that you think really matter in the eyes of the world. And they don't care if they have to offend their brother in Christ. They don't care If they have to hurt uh, their brother in Christ in order to gain access, they will do it because they have an immoderate and ungodly desire for significance and self-worth and self-value. And in order for Paul to puncture that kind of thinking, he gives them a very cold glass of water as a dose of reality right in the face. Notice what he does here. He says, brethren, in verse 26... Consider your calling. And he goes through a whole series of categories to get them to think about what they are not. And he uses this word here, according to the flesh, which is a very important qualifying word, because he's saying, according to the standards of human opinion and wisdom. In other words, we can translate that according to the way of thinking of people who really matter. Now you think about whoever that is for you. Maybe it's the opinion page in the back side of the Wall Street Journal. Maybe for you it is the thinking of a particular think tank or group. But whatever it is, he is saying, according to the flesh, according to the standards that seem to be powerful and influential and significant, he says measure yourself according to that standard and see where you measure up. And he says, first of all, to them that there weren't very many wives. A lot of different ways that that may be translated or looked at, but most likely what it means is that there wasn't very many professors among them. Uh, There weren't very many intellectuals among them. There weren't uh, very many leading uh, rhetoricians or philosophers among them. They just had an average education. They just went to junior college. Uh, he says there were not many mighty. In other words, what he means by that is there weren't very many politicians among them, or generals, or influential leading figures. He says there were not many noble. That means people uh, who had an upper class birth. Today, if you hear any of the discussion about uh, taxation in our country, we're assured that uh, the vast majority of people, 95% of the people out there, will not be taxed. It's just those people who are in the upper 2%. Those greedy people who have all that... I shouldn't inject my political philosophy in here, but you get my sense here. Those people who are on the upper, upper, upper income scale. Those people, noble people, powerful people, people of significance... There's already any of them in the church. He says, just look at your calling. You don't come from a pedigreed background. Now, that is rather harmless compared to now how he describes them. He says, you were not this, you were not wise, you were not mighty, you were not noble. But now notice how he characterizes them by saying what they were. He says, but God has chosen foolish things of the world to shame the wise, weak things of the world to shame those which are not strong, base things and and despise things He has chosen, things that are not so that He may nullify things that are. There you have four categories uh, that are used to describe what they actually were. Now it's fascinating as you look at the language in the original Greek, and I'm so happy to see that in the New American Standard they've retained it, because what Paul does is call them things. They are its. He does not use the masculine or the feminine gender. He doesn't, even, uh, he doesn't even use language which would at least say they were persons. They were its. They were things. And notice how he describes them. He says, God has chosen the foolish things. Literally, in the original, it's moronic he has chosen the moronic things. He says he has chosen the weak things. Probably a reference to their cultural capacities. Probably not a reference to their physical strength. As if they were a bunch of uh, 90 pound weaklings. It's it's more in the sense of they have no cultural bearing. Uh, then he goes on to say the base things of the world. And I think if here you could probably just as well talk about or use the kind of language of marginalized. You probably heard that language thrown around in the media. The marginalized in society. He says that's what you were. You were foolish and weak and marginalized. And the last description here is very interesting. Because at the end of verse 27, uh, 28 he says, The things... That are not. Things that are not. Literally, no things. That's a very powerful critique of them. It's a a fairly honest assessment of what they were. And and Paul is not doing that to be mean-spirited. This is not just name-calling. This is not just uh, Paul trying to uh, use his own... uh, abilities intellectually to, to cut them down to size and make them feel uh, really intellectually stupid so that they will have to acknowledge they're dependent upon his great mind to think. He's, Jim, he's just pointing out the facts and he's saying this is why you are so prone to the factions that you're experiencing in your church. Is because you really weren't anything before you came to Christ and now you're in the church and it seems like coming to Christ has opened up a door of influence to you. You're finally at the place in life where you are accessing power and opportunity and influence. You see, that is the virus of triumphalism right there. It's using Jesus Christ and the truth and the church as a platform for gain. And as I start to think about that, I see, man, things have not really changed, have they? Things have not really changed that much in the church over the course of 2,000 years because that virus of triumphalism was never cured. It seems to be with the church in one generation after the next that people use their uh, church relationships and the position of being in church to uh, gain positions of influence or power or access. People who are called to be servants and hold the titles of church office, which were really about getting access to serve others, have been turned into... Uh, opportunities for them to be served by others. Uh, People carve out positions of influence on committees and boards within the church in order to gain access and power and the right to tell people what to do. Uh, People who, by God's grace, have been given opportunities to grab a, a microphone and to speak into radio or television waves have used that many times not to advance the cause of Christ, but it seems more often than not when you start thinking about the stories of of great uh, church leaders and uh, radio Christian preacher personalities being exposed in their life for gross and scandalous sin, you see more often than not that people get who get to those positions use them for selfish gain. Expanded influence. More radio stations and TV markets being made available to them. Big book deals so they can sell lots of books and make lots of money and live a very economically empowered life. Paul says to us this morning as a warning, do not use your Christian standing, your place in the church as a means of accessing cultural power and influence. That's the way of the world. That's what the world values and treasures. That's not what Christ is about, nor His church. Remember, He's saying all of these things to critique the factions that are among them and the mentality that stands behind it. When people say, "I'm of Paul," "I'm of Paulus," "I'm of this uh, radio preacher personalities congregation," I go to this great mega church, and I am identified with all of these uh, seemingly rich and powerful and influential and significant people. So don't use Christianity for that. It's not meant for gain. It rebukes the mentality. And then he goes on to give them a new lens. He says, "This is what you should be seeing." This is what you should see the world through. This is the lens which you should see yourself through. This is what it's about. And he tells us now in verse 30. He says, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And here I want to settle for some moments. I want you to see here that there is an implied contrast here. He says, first of all, you are in Christ. What's the other option? You're either in Christ or you're in Adam, the Bible says. You are either in fallen Adam and in Him, subject to the powers of the fall and sinfulness and depravity and all of the distortion of our lives and bodies and thoughts due to sin and under the condemnation of sin and the guilt of sin, or you're in Jesus Christ. And by being in Him, you have access to every spiritual blessing. There's only two ways to be in the world, though. The world thinks there's all kinds of factions. The world thinks there's all kinds of religions. They think there's all kinds of paths to God. There's all kinds of ways to think and to be. And the Bible uh, refutes that and it boils it all down. and says you can funnel absolutely everything into two categories. You're in Christ. Or you're in Adam. You're in sin, subject to condemnation and curse and the wrath of God, being an Adam, or you're in Christ. And notice here how he says you get to be in Christ. He says, by His doing, you're in Christ. By grace. We should have seen this coming because of verse 27 and 28. He kept on using the word chosen. He says God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things. God has chosen the despised. He's already accenting the graciousness of God. that It's by divine selection. It's by divine sovereignty. It's by divine choice. It's divine grace that you are what you are. But now he makes it very clear. By His doing, you are in Christ. You see, that's what gives the Gospel such punch. And we'll get into what Paul means when he says you are in Christ and the significance and the value of that. But you see, that's what gives the Gospel all of its punch. It's not that you were good. It's not because God looked down and he saw that you were somebody of significance and value because you had wealth or you had power or you had wisdom and he said, hey, you know what? I'd really like that person to be in my church because they're in the upper 2%. It's not that God looked down at your savvy or your ability intellectually and said, hey, you know what? I would really like him to be on my team because of his intelligence. No, the the grace of the Gospel and the punch of that message of grace comes in this. That you were not many wise, that you were not many mighty, that you were not many noble, that you were foolish, that you were weak, that you were uh, despised, that you were base, that you were nothing. And that by the grace of God, you are what you are. You are a child of God, purely by grace, in Jesus Christ. You know, if that wasn't the case, the church would be full of selfish, arrogant, self-righteous people. Sad that it is too often full of those kinds of people because they didn't listen to the message. You cannot be a member of Christ's church and be proud. You cannot be. Because the, the, the entrance... Uh, fee into getting into his church is you can't be one of those kinds of people because God doesn't accept them in. He doesn't take them in. Paul says he takes the people who are abased and humbled by the grace of God. He says it's by His doing that you are here. By His doing you are in Christ. Another critique at this mentality of factionalism and lining up behind I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm a Cephas I'm somebody now no, he says you're not somebody by his grace by his doing you're in Jesus Christ and what does that mean? to be in Jesus Christ the apostle Paul says is first of all have Christ be made wisdom unto you what does that mean? In other places, Paul talks about Jesus Christ being the one in whom all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge exist. In other words, what Paul is saying by different ways of describing Christ as wisdom is saying, this is God's will revealed to you so that you can come to know Him. And that implies that the world is full of false knowledge of God. That's what it implies, that the world is full of false knowledge of God and false paths to God and false salvations and false saviors. Paul describes the wisdom of the world in Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but here's what he says about, about unbelieving, unregenerate thinking. He says it walks in futility of its mind, being darkened in its understanding. So this is what characterizes the way the world thinks, even in religious terms. It's futile. It's, it's useless. It's darkened. It can't find its way. It's like when the lights go out at your house unexpectedly at night. I imagine you've had that experience. It doesn't seem like it happens a lot in Los Angeles. But when we lived for a time back in New York, the cold years, as we call them, even in the spring, in the summer, there was these powerful um, electric storms, thunder and lightning, and and very often the power would go out. And you kind of learn to get good after a while at finding your way around the darkness of your house, to find the one place in the house where the drawer was, where the flashlight was, where the candles were. But when you're not used to it, it's very disorienting you know that you probably set a flashlight aside somewhere, and you know that you should know the way around your house because you walk around in it all the time, but just try it for yourself one of these days. Turn out all the lights in the middle of dark, uh, after dark, and you realize your house is a lot darker than you think it is, and a lot more confusing and disorienting than it is. And then try to stagger around the house and to find that drawer where the flashlight is. That's one way that the Bible describes the darkness of the human mind in trying to find the truth about God. It says we kind of stumble about in the dark as blind people. That's what it is to be outside of Christ and to not uh, have the working of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind and understanding. It's to be uh, like stumbling around in the dark looking for the flashlight to turn in. It's, it, it's frustrating. But what, but what Paul says here is that Jesus now has been made unto us wisdom so that we would know the truth. And we need that. Paul said that the Corinthians needed it in their day. He said the thinking of the unregenerate world around him was characterized as futility. Useless. Without content. And if Paul could say that of his day, I'm quite certain he could say it of ours. It's fascinating to think about that in the 20th century and now on into the 21st century, we have seen the most dramatic increase in technology and knowledge and its application as in any time in the known history of the world. We know more now about how things work than ever. And yet, it's surely ironic that in the midst of the accumulation of such knowledge and the harnessing of such knowledge and applying of such knowledge to make uh, user-friendly technologies which make our lives easy, that if you went and you consulted the academia and the local colleges and university of this day, you would find at the top of all of those departments that if you asked them what it means to know, they would say, we really, literally know nothing. That's the truth they will tell you we literally know nothing. And that we can't know anything because truth is unknowable. It's only what we construct. That's how the world thinks. But what Paul says is that Christ has been made wisdom from God unto us. We know that we can know because Jesus knows. Because Paul says that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are not in ignorance. It's not okay for us to go down to the local university or the debate club where the philosophers and the scholars and the uh, the anointed thinkers of our age are and pretend that we don't know anything. That all truth is relative. That all morality is relative. That there's really no meaning except for the meaning that I impose upon ideas. Or my experience. It's not true. We may not know all that we need to know or should know or will know one day, but we do know something because Christ has been made wisdom unto us, He says. So that we know the truth. At least the truth insofar as how is it that we become saved? And how is it that we are to live for God and His glory? And how is it that we are to worship Him in a way that pleases Him? We know those things. Because... Christ has that knowledge and He has been made wisdom unto us. He's also been made righteousness. He's also been made righteousness unto us and the value of that is very obvious to us, I suppose. suppose. After all, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. That's a categorical statement. It's a categorical statement. That's what they call it in logic. A categorical, universal statement. No one is righteous. Not one. Paul is saying you could search the world over, in every generation, in every corner of the world, and you will never find one righteous person. You say, well, so what? So we're all in really bad shape. well, Because we're not righteous, the Bible says that we're subject to God's judgment. That's the so what. It's not just that we can commiserate with each other because we're all miserable and we're all in the same condition. No, it means that we're subject to judgment. We're subject to wrath. You see, when you begin to think about it like that, you begin to realize how significant and important it is that Paul said that Jesus Christ has been made righteousness to us. It means that the obedience of Jesus Christ to the commandments of God, and we even read some of them off today as we looked at Matthew chapter 5 and we we puzzled over how hard the law of God is that we are to turn the other cheek, we're to go the extra mile, that we're to pray for our enemies that we're to uh, really, in our life, pattern the love of God. And if we're thinking about that very honestly, we realize that we don't do that. That we are selfish. That when somebody cuts us off in traffic, our immediate impulse is to go cut them off. Yes, guilty as charged. I've done that a few times. (laughs) Not what we're supposed to do, however. You see, we're not righteous. But what Paul says is that Jesus is righteousness to us. Because of that, God looks upon us, and though we are in our sins, He sees us with Christ's righteousness on our account. And therefore we are justified. Because of what Jesus has done. He's been made unto us righteousness. He goes on to say after that that He's been made unto us sanctification. He's been made unto us sanctification, which means holiness. You see, one of the things that sin causes is corruption in our life. And it it taints us. and, And really that sin makes us unacceptable to serve God. Makes us unacceptable to approach God. It makes us unacceptable to be in His presence. It makes us unacceptable to call out on Him as Father. It makes it unacceptable for us to go into the heavenly of heavenlies and the throne of God and be welcomed there. We can't be there because the Bible says that God is of pure eyes than to behold unrighteousness. We're useless. We can't even be next to God even though He's our Creator because of sin. And what Paul says is that Jesus Christ has also been made unto us sanctification, that is holiness. Because we are engrafted into Him, our position is one of being sanctified now. That means that we can do what we've just done in our service, which is sing to God. Confess the truth before God call upon mercy from God. All kinds of things that we can now do because we are in Christ and His holiness is our holiness. And God accepts us. And now God is shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. All by grace. So, what it is for us to be in Christ is not only something that God has done by grace, it's it's to have Jesus be made unto us wisdom have Jesus' righteousness to be our righteousness, and to have Jesus' sanctification to be ours. And then finally he says our redemption. Charles Hodge makes the observation here that whenever the Apostle Paul uses this word a redemption and he distinguishes it from justification and sanctification, it means something a little different than it does outside of those contexts. But basically he says that it indicates for us that He's talking about the goal. When it says that Jesus has been made redemption for us, it's that uh, He is the final victory. It's pointing towards the end of this entire process when history ends and time ends and the Kingdom of God comes. It's the finality of the process. He's been made unto us deliverance in that day. Deliverance from sin and all of its effects. Why has Paul said all of these things? Remember, that's such an important question we always have to ask ourselves. Why does he say what he says? Remember, it's because they have this immoderate desire to be significant. And significant in the ways in which the world respects to be adorned with power, to have the marks of wisdom and success and all the things that the world says really matter. They're prone to that. We're prone to that. And Paul says what you need to do is take those old glasses off and put on these new ones. You see, the only lens that matters is the one that God gives. And the lens that God gives is this one. It says, this is how you need to think of yourself and to conceive of yourself. You are in Christ. And that's what matters. You are in Christ. Christ has been made unto you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he says what you need to get straight in your mind is that the most important thing is how you are in Christ. And so the question that comes for us this morning is what matters most? See, that's one of the things that we have to ask ourselves when we look at this and we see what Paul is attacking, what he's arguing against. And on the other hand, what he's saying that we need to do is think about ourselves as we are in Jesus Christ and stop worrying about how the world labels us and perceives us and understands us. One of the questions that we're forced to ask though when we see that is, what matters to us? What is it that matters to you? You can tell very easily what matters to you by what you prioritize. Do you prioritize in your thinking the pursuit of things that the world says really means you're something? Will you go out of your way to pursue things that you know are contrary to the ways in which God wants you to act and to think and to be just because you want to make it look like you've gotten somewhere in life? text forces us to ask, what matters to us most? The things that matter to God in His way of thinking and evaluating things or to the world? One last thing we're going to see here and then we'll close. Why? Why is it that God has done things the way He has? Why is it that God chose the foolish? Why is it that God chose the weak? Why is it That God chose the base? Why is it that God chose the things that are not? Why? Paul gives you answers. Two times in verse 27, he says he chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the things that are strong. So why did he do that? Why did he choose the foolish and the weak? Well, the Word of God tells us to shame the... The opposites. To shame the power. To shame the intellectual. Then, verse 28, he goes on to say that he chose the base and the despised, the things that are not, that he may nullify. That means make powerless. You don't really get the whole sense of what Paul's up to until you read verse 29, though. I hope you see this for yourselves as your Bible is open. He says, so that no man may boast before God. Why is it that that God went out of His way to show all men that it's not about what they are or about their abilities or about their capacity or about their family or about their standing or about their social rank? Why is it that God went out of His way to choose the opposite kinds of people in order to shame that and to make it powerless and to show its weakness? Why? Well, Paul says here's the reason. It's so that no one will boast. So that every person who comes to Jesus Christ by faith and for salvation knows... That it's God's grace. That it's God's grace that has made them what they are in Christ. Can you imagine what church would be like if the message was different? Can you imagine what church would be like if Paul said the opposite? He chose the wise to shame the fools. He chose the powerful to shame the weak. He chose the things that were to show the things that are not, that they are powerless. Can you imagine what church would look like? You couldn't get a door big enough to get the big heads through it. (laughs) That's the truth. You couldn't find... A door that would fit all of the inflated egos. See, that's what Paul is saying. The world values those things. The world values the marks of power and wisdom. The world values self-esteem and self-value, self-worth. But God doesn't. No, the church is for the place who aren't boasting in themselves. The church is where God has gathered His people to Himself by His grace. And that it would not be filled full of boastful, proud, arrogant people. But it would be filled with people who keep asking the question, Why was I a guest? That's it. It's so that every Sunday when you come to worship God, you'd stop worrying about all the symbols of power in the world. You'd stop worrying what all the smart people are doing, what all the rich people are doing, what all the famous people are doing, what all the cool people are doing, what all the in-group is doing. You're not supposed to worry about any of that. The only thing that you're supposed to worry about when you sit down here to worship God is the marvel of it all. Why am I a guest? Why will God... Receive me in my worship this morning. And the only answer is, because you're in Christ. And the only way you're in Christ is because of what God did. You know, I have a lot of things that I meant to say in application. I don't think it's really necessary to say them right now. I think what I've said here in the flow of this message and expounding the text... if it's used properly understood properly applied properly will help us to fight as a church the virus of triumphalism that we will not be power grabbers or power seekers but that we will be people who are humble before the Lord by grace and that we will realize we are what we are by the sovereign grace of God to us And that that's a privilege. And that that's a blessing. That we will spend eternity saying thank you for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which unravels our confused thinking. That gives us something objective to lay hands on. That fills our dark mind and understanding with new light, which makes us whole, which makes us strengthened by grace, which nourishes us spiritually and builds us up in Christ. And we pray this morning that if we have heard things which wounded our conscience or our pride, that that would be good for us. It would be like medicine. It would be like healing to us. That it would reprove us for uh, self-congratulating. And that it would remind us that uh, all that we have been given is from your grace. And that that would lead us to humility and gratitude and joy each day. Knowing uh, that it is a, a gracious and loving gift from our God. Lord, we pray that you would unite us together more and more. That you would heal any divisions among us. And that you would help us to worship you with one heart and one voice. Uh, with hearts that are overflowing with joy and gratitude for all that you have done. Receive our prayer for the sake of Jesus. Amen.